Welcome to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal, nor are they meant to be used as treatment recommendations for patients. Welcome, everyone. I'm Dr. Travis Decker coming from the United States Air Force Academy, and today I'll be joined by a real friend, colleague, and mentor, Dr. Lance LeClaire, both a former Notre Dame grad and Naval Academy team physician for many years. Our friendly rivalry has led to new discoveries and greater depths of professional friendship, and I'm beyond thankful for his mentorship. He now works as a team physician for the National Predators at Vanderbilt, helping push forward what is already a world-renowned program and staff. He tackles all things shoulder and knee, and he remains a rising superstar not only within sports medicine, but within Anna. It's a real privilege to have him today to discuss one of his manuscripts while he was an active duty surgeon. Lance, awesome to have you, and thanks for agreeing to join us today. Thanks for the very kind introduction, Travis. It's it's certainly a pleasure to be here, and always great to be able to talk shop with a with a fellow academy team physician, uh, especially in the format of this podcast. You guys do just such a phenomenal job with this podcast, and I'm honored to uh, to be a guest. I'd say let's just get started. We'll jump right into it, and so we'll be discussing your article, which uh, is entitled a "Biomechanical Comparison of High Tensile Strength Tape versus High Tensile Strength Suture." for tendon fixation under cyclic loading. Lance, it's a great article and it should be fun to discuss. And today I'm gonna to take a little bit different spin. I'd like to discuss both your article, but also your journey and how you were able to make this article come to fruition. More or less, we'd love to discuss your interest in research and maybe some advice for young and eager researchers as they begin their practice. So first, let's just start with the basic premise of the story and what gave you the idea and where was the gap in knowledge that you wanted to fill when you were asking this scientific question? Yeah, thanks, Travis. I mean, I, I guess at the risk of making a short story long, this um, this actually probably started back in about 2009, 2010. Uh, Buddy Savoie was actually a, a visiting professor at my residency program uh, at Naval Medical Center San Diego. And during his uh, visiting professorship, he, he was talking about some of the work he was doing at the time with the safety of corticosteroid injections. And um, it really kind of struck me that here we were looking and uh, taking a look and discussing safety of something that we do pretty much every day as an orthopedic surgeon in clinic. And, um, you know, he really made the comments that we need to critically review the common things that we do for safety and efficacy. And I think that that stuck with me. And so um, after I finished fellowship and came back as a staff, I was, I was, as we do in the military, I was doing a lot of shoulder instability cases. And at that time I was using all suture anchors um, with thin high tensile suture um, uh, fiber wire or um, uh, high tensile wire uh, to repair the labrums. And um, the soft uh, all suture anchors were relatively new at that time. And it kind of hit me, I thought back to the conversation that we had had with Dr. Savoie about, you know, we're putting these anchors in and, and the supposed advantage is that the bone grows up to the anchor and, and around the anchor, as opposed to maybe some of the bioabsorbable anchors that may have some cystic formation. and. And it sort of hit me that we didn't we didn't really have any studies that looked at what happens with those anchors. So we first started by looking at, you know, all suture anchors and what happens with those in terms of the glenoid reaction and bone reaction. We published that in JBJS. But the other the other component of the anchor was not just the anchor itself, but the suture that was used to repair the capsule of labral tissue. And uh, I kind of thought to myself after tying a few knots that these sutures are cutting through two layers of gloves and into my skin as I tie these knots. And what happens with the capsulolabral tissue? And, you know, if you've ever done an arthroscopic repair, you hardly ever uh, revision repair. 
in the shoulder, you hardly ever see a loose anchor floating around. It's not necessarily the bone anchor interface that's the weak spot. It's the it's the suture uh, interface with the capsule labral tissue. And so, um, you know, it was actually one of the reps that was um, that was I was working with at the time that that had me sort of tie a knot uh, of suture uh, around my backpack and lift it up with my finger, you know, and you could feel that it was painful. And then then he had me do the same with suture tape and it was easier to lift the backpack. And the point being that there's probably because of the increased surface area of the tape, there's probably less stress on the and hopefully less pull through in the capsule labral tissue. And um, and so that that I, that concept was attractive to me. But at that time, there was really no data, um, you know, on on the effectiveness of the tapes. And, you know, thinking back again to, to what Buddy Savoy taught us was, um, you know, to think critically about what we're doing. And, and the concept of tape made intuitive sense, but we didn't have really data to prove um, in, a, in a tissue repair model that it worked. And so, you know, at that time, I was struggling to come up with a good capsule labral repair model that we could test in the lab. But we had some cadaveric tissue available um, and used other uh, soft tissue repair uh, opportunities. And so really, it just started from a, hey, do these tapes really work the way we think that we want them to work? And so we eventually devised the study that, that we did uh, back in San Diego, back in, um, I think it was 2016. Uh, that we published and that was a that was a pullout strength uh load to failure model but we really needed a cyclic model and we could get into that on how we arrived at that but that's kind of the the long story of how we got to where we are with this study that's awesome it's it's amazing how much visiting professorships can really alter and impact just the way we think and the way we approach our practice i think primarily uh, is is how all of us apply it but even just research ideas that stem from it and so, something so simple as efficacy and safety of steroid injections and how that turns into a biomechanics study on yeah. high tensile strength suture, right? So we're so grateful to have the traveling professors. And I know we within the military have been super lucky through the ANA and the MASS program to have almost sponsored visiting professors that are world renowned come and speak to us and speak to trainees and how they really have helped formulate, I think, a lot of research ideas and impacted a lot of practices. So it's uh, pretty cool that this is like a direct correlation of kind of something that's come out of that. So, uh, well, a little bit of like the offshoot that I had promised, uh, now being at an academy, I'm understanding the resources and the hoops that you have to go through to make even a small and simple study work. And so this is mainly for the non-physician listeners because we do have quite a bit out there. Uh, but can you describe a little bit of the process that you had to go through to really make this study happen? There's just so many different dynamics and in terms of like cadavers and specimens and and anchors and suture and all those things. Do you mind just talking a little bit about that process? Yeah, I think there's some there's some interesting aspects of this story, and especially for young investigators and residents, I think. The first thing is the the key takeaway in my mind is persistence. You know, when we first started thinking about suture, conventional high strength suture versus tape, I was in San Diego and we didn't have a biomechanics lab at that time. But I had some visionary leaders and Captain Dana Covey, who was our chairman at the time, and Matt Preventure, who is our uh, who's now a captain, uh, re recently retired uh, captain, who was our division chief of sports and. 
they had the leadership and foresight to order a biomechanics testing machine. But um, it had been ordered. But as you might imagine, in government red tape, it had been ordered and supposedly had been delivered, but no one knew where it was. Mm -hmm. So we were in when I got back from fellowship, one of the, you know, the charges that I got from Matt and, and Dr. Covey was to find this machine and get it to work. You know, let's put it to work and let's build this biomechanics lab. So the takeaway of persistence is if you can remember that scene at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark, when you go into the warehouse, when they go into the warehouse, and there's just crates of things everywhere. That's our our, our Instron machine was somewhere in there and it looked like that. <laughs> and so uh, we eventually found the machine. We uh, jumped through all the government red tape to, to get some space in the hospital, which is no easy feat when you're trying to get get square footage in a federal building. Um, and we set up the Dana C. Covey Biomechanics Testing Lab in San Diego um, eventually. And that led to our first our first uh, tapes versus suture study. And, and just the persistence of going down there and physically going through boxes. And if you have something you want to accomplish, just stick with it. And then uh, the funding piece is, is another one that, you know, it's going to be hard to get, you know, a large amount of funding for something like this. It's a simple biomechanics test, but we, um, we engaged our command. There were resident research funds available uh, for projects like this. And uh, we had a resident take the lead on the project. They got local uh, uh, funding that allowed us to purchase all the materials. And then the, the third thing I would say is just be opportunistic. You know, we had, uh, we had cadavers that were available because of our anatomy teaching sessions for the, for the residents. And so we we took everything we could from the cadavers once we were done with the anatomy sessions and use those as our specimens and try to get creative about how we could use the tissue available to, to, to do this biomechanics test. So, um, you know, I think using your resources in terms of uh, what's available to you, being persistent and finding a way to get it done and then um, relying on your leadership to help you navigate uh, the process uh, and good mentors along the way. And then you know, some of the logistics like finding a good uh, engineer, a biomechanics engineer uh, that can help uh, set up your testing um, because there's a lot of there's a lot of technicalities that, um, frankly, we're not familiar with usually as as orthopedic surgeons. So relying on that expertise, getting stats on board early uh, ahead of time. So you set it up the right way, I think, is all those are all key components. Yeah, it's it's a daunting task for sure. And, you know, have been a personal recipient of Dr. Preventure's wisdom and his foresight and being able to really like look into the future to set up things. And it's awesome that you all were able to persist and in, in the, I think the creativity aspect of making sure that to get things done and uh, ensure that a project comes to fruition. I think I'll shout out, um, I'll shout out Anna too, for, you know, there Anna and Somos uh, and a lot of our societies have, seed uh, funding uh, for projects like this. And, and um, you know, as a resident, if you have an idea, there, there are uh, funding opportunities through our societies. And these are great ways to get residents started in the research, uh, in the research realm. And I also should give a, a shout out to Tony Lee, who uh, ran the lab at Walter Reed that ran this particular study that we're going to talk about, because he is certainly the jack of all trades in, ter in terms of the knowledge and expertise on how to set this up the right way. And uh, he just did a phenomenal job with this study. That's awesome. Well, I think finding those resources are key uh, and to help with some of, I think some of the fears that we have in terms of approaching these specific types of projects 
you know, the basic side studies and biomechanical studies, they're a foundation for us coming up with these newer various techniques and inventing possibly new implants or, or uh, furthering new and innovative ideas. So taking these studies on, you know, they can, uh, I think they cause a fear for us. And sometimes in that the fear of it never being finished or the, the fear that it's just going to be a time sink. And I think it causes a lot of us, especially as young investigators and, and when we're just starting out in practice and maybe fresh with a lot of these ideas to shy away from these types of, of projects. Do you have any advice for that early career clinician who is who has these types of ideas, wants to maybe approach and do these types of studies, but maybe doesn't have a lot of the time or the resources trying to study for board, start a family, do certain, do certain things along those lines. Yeah, absolutely. I think first and foremost, you've got to be passionate about the project that you're interested in. And so, um, you know, I think looking at uh, continually as you go through your early practice, looking at opportunities to test safety and efficacy of the products that we're using um, and being curious about the things that we're doing. Um, and so when you find that thing that interests you, um, let that motivate you to, to persist and uh, get things going. You know, we all talk about being cost conscious these days, and there's another opportunity to really demonstrate to ourselves and our colleagues whether the things that we're doing are whether the cost is worth um, the benefit that we're seeing. And this is an opportunity to do that. And um, I think, uh, you know, as a senior, you know, as we progress on, you know, I'm mid-career now, but um, mid-career and senior surgeons, this is a great opportunity for to introduce residents to the research process. And it's a great opportunity for us to advocate for them to get those resources and help uh, make these opportunities more readily available um, and, and help surgeons do these things. And so I think first find a clinical question that you're interested in as a young surgeon, find a mentor who's done these projects before, because it's like speaking a foreign language sometimes when you're talking biomechanics. And so talking to somebody who's been through it, that's uh, failed a few times and trying to set up a biomechanics project can be really valuable in terms of helping you efficiently use your time as you set these up, align your resources. You may need, you may not have biomechanics testing at your particular um, institution. So you may need to partner with somebody, partner with a colleague at another location and work together. And like we talked about before, seek those unique funding opportunities um, and, and, and just be persistent in really driving at that clinical question that you're trying to answer. Uh, and, and, um, and I think that will help you find success over the long term. Cool. Well, you know, speaking of the clinical question here and speaking of your study, we'll dive back into that a little bit. Love for you to explain the design of the study and kind of where did you learn about which tenants to harvest, which ones to use? How did you come up with a cyclic uh, mechanical protocol that you used to set up? I, I know you obviously said that you had somebody that was running the lab at, at Walter Reed that helped you come up with this. But kind of take us through how to uh, how what your approach is to design a study like this. Yeah. So as we kind of alluded to before, a little bit was just opportunistic. You know, I initially wanted to do shoulders, which um, we're now doing. Ayub uh, Karwandiar is a resident at, at Vanderbilt and, and uh, we've come up with a good shoulder model. So we're now doing uh, testing tapes in a capsule labral repair model. But at the time, we really didn't have a good way to do that. And one of the reasons is because when you when you attach, um, you know, the specimen uh, to the to the testing machine, if you just if you just squeeze soft tissue in a cadaver model, sometimes the tissue just pulls right out of the of the clamp. And so what we really wanted was uh, 
tissue that was attached to bone. So we started thinking, okay, we've got these cadavers. Um, we need soft tissue that's attached to bone. So let's let's cut let's cut the patella in half. And so then we can use the patellar tendon as it's attached to the inferior pole of the patella. We can use the quad tendon as it's attached to the superior patella. Um, and so we can clamp uh, with the bone involved. So then we're not just clamping directly onto soft tissue. So that gives us the strength and a sturdy way to, to fix the specimen on one end. And then we suture the soft tissue end and pull with, with the uh, machine that way. And then we wanted something that we could more, you know, just directly repair, uh, sorry, directly compare suture to tape. And so we just cut down the middle of the patella, used one side for the, for the suture, the other, other side for the tape. You know, and the other location where we found that we could do that was the calcaneus and the Achilles. Um, and so, you know, I, I would love to have tested, you know, like let's say, for instance, the pec or a rotator cuff, but it's harder to clamp the muscle tissue and really get adequate pullout strength through the machine that way. So started first by having something that we could compare directly, suture and tape, and then also having the bone involved so we could adequately clamp and, and really pull with enough force to really replicate a clinical model. And so first we we were just so happy to find figure out a way to do that that we just said let's just pull it till it fails <laughs> you know and and see what it shows let's see if it really is higher pullout strength and so we did um and we published that in arthroscopy in 2016 that was the Ganant paper we discussed before but arthroscopy in the review and the editorial commentary said this is this is nice but this doesn't really truly replicate what we see clinically and that's a great and it was a great point because um, we really needed cyclic modeling, especially if you, you know, the early cyclic modeling, as we saw in the paper from 2021, you know, the first 10 cycles or so replicate, you know, elongation, normal elongation of the tissue uh, and suture repair interface. And so um, that first 10, the first 10 cycles really replicate, uh, you know, the early uh, um sturdiness of the repair. And then you've got cyclic loading, which is what we see clinically, you know, after a patellar tendon repair, somebody's walking around and weight bearing on it. You know, it's not just load to failure. It's it's the cyclic loading that's really most clinically relevant in a repair model. I totally agree. And it's awesome that even just taking one study and learning from the reviews and taking it to that next step and then coming up with a second relevant clinical question. It's awesome that you guys were able to kind of catapult into that and so can you take go through your major findings and takeaways and maybe touch on any of the differences seen in the construct elongation as it pertained to the stitch type or the specific tendon of the specimen that you tested? Yeah, I think the key takeaway is that um, in the in most models that tape does what we what we hope what we had hoped it would do. So it was superior um, to conventional um, suture. And so, you know, we think about uh, different clinical models, but, you know, we tested the patellar tendon, quad tendon, Achilles. And in a cyclic model, it, it prevents that early elongation, i.e. stretch um, early on. And it has a higher load to failure, essentially, pullout. And so um, the Krakow model was the best suture configuration. And that was across all tissue types. So Krakow had less initial stretch and it had a higher load to failure. And in the previous study, it also had higher uh, pullout strength. So it seems that at least based on this biomechanical model that um, if you are doing a patellar tendon repair, for example, if you use tapes and you use it in a Krakow configuration, 
that's going to give you the most biomechanically advantageous repair, both in the short term, immediately after, you know, as the patient takes their first couple steps. Um, and um, as they continue to weight bear or load the repair as the tissue heals. So hopefully over the long term, it provides more sturdy fixation. The other thing I think that, you know, we learned with this is that, you know, we talk about, um, you know, really uh, kind of stressing the repair in the operating room. So cycling the repair uh, and, and getting all the slack out of the repair, making sure the tissue is taut, the tension is is appropriate with the, the uh, tape or the suture, whatever you choose to use. I think we we saw that that was important in this study as well. I'm sure, I'm sure we could come up with another couple studies just off of that last statement that you just had uh, in terms of cycling and, and uh, really testing out uh, different constructs and different surgical procedures that we're doing now that are kind of even newer. You know, one thing that we often don't talk about, but is often necessary to discuss, and this is kind of more maybe back to your journey, is that, you know, industry is an essential part of what we do. We greatly need their support to help advance the field. And as a military physician, both myself, but I know you have had to be really hyper aware of any conflicts of interest and uh, and really had to focus your studies and any of your clinical questions based off of the benefit of the patient. So do you have any thoughts and insight on how to best approach industry when wanting to ask these relevant clinical questions when testing out these various implants? Yeah, I think um, it's, it's a great point that, um, you know, military has a, a few extra added hoops to jump through, but I think we all face this in our clinical practice of, of um, you know, recognizing, recognizing the importance of industry partnerships. It can be invaluable for learning, surgical advances, and ultimately the better and better care of our patients. And, um, you know, so I think having a good relationship with industry partners can be uh, incredibly valuable. Um, but I think the number one thing is just transparency, especially when it comes to re to, to research. Um, and I mean that in a couple of different ways. We try to be uh, transparent with, uh, you know, initially with Naval Medical Center San Diego, and then ultimately with the second study, uh, Walter Reed National uh, Military Medical Center, in terms of what we were doing, what we were testing, the materials we were using, um, and and our plan, where we wanted to get our funding, how we were going to obtain the materials, and it, for us, it was preferable to purchase the materials rather than uh, having those be gifted to us. Um, and so we made sure that we involved legal. We went through uh, the legal department. We made sure that we involved uh, the IRB early and often, even if it's a an exempt study because it's cadaveric, we wanted uh, to make sure that everybody was uh, aware of what we were doing and everything was above board. And I think the other side of the transparency coin is just being transparent with the industry partner that you're working with that, look, we it's really important to us that we maintain the, the control of the data and that if we, we, we wanna be able to publish the results um, no matter what they are, you know, and making sure that that expectation is, is discussed upfront. Um, and you know what happens if we test, you know, uh, suture tape and and it doesn't show a difference. You know, are we still going to be um, okay to to proceed with publishing that data? And we wanted to be able to do that. And I think that transparency in those discussions needs to needs to happen up front. You got to make sure you've got a good agreement there. And I'm certainly not an expert on that, but um, we we found that 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 really created a, a good um, collaborative environment when everything's discussed ahead of time and, and everybody knows what the plan is ahead of time. 
Well, I think uh, for anybody that knows you, and as Dr. Kelly would say, you're as good as they come. And so you're above board and you keep everything uh, very by the books. And I think that makes you a very honest researcher and everybody knows that they can trust what you put out there. And so uh, I think it, your approach is is a is a great starting point, especially for us that are still trying to figure out how and what the best way to do it is. And uh, and even talking with the industry partners, being able to talk about who controls the data and how is it released? And are you able to release the data to make sure that, you know, ultimately we're doing what's best with the, with the patient. And I, I know a lot of our industry partners value that as well. And they're always looking for ways to get better. It benefits them in the long run as well as ultimately does benefit the patient. So. Well, I'll give you, I'll give you a little specific example of how it benefited us in terms of these uh, studies too. When we did the first load to failure study, we had no historical data or published data to, to base a power analysis off of, you know, so we had, we went to our industry partner and said, Hey, what have you seen in your internal testing in terms of, you know, the differences in pullout strength, because that's going to help us set up a power analysis ahead of time. So we know how many, how many, um, uh, specimens we need and and we set it up the right way so that we we do this and we're successful in demonstrating what we want to demonstrate or um not demonstrating what we think we we're going to see so just having you know being able to discuss that data and 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 design our study through that collaborative partnership was very helpful we'll finish off with this uh but it's something that i always like kind of rehashing towards the end of these these podcasts is the study was just done just a couple years ago but now there's new iterations of different types of tapes and constructs and sutures. How has this study currently changed your practice? And have you been able to generalize it predominantly for what you do across all of your surgical procedures now? Yeah, I think admittedly, I'm probably biased because of these uh, studies that we invested uh, you know, time and effort into. But I, I do try to use tapes um, in, in a lot of different clinical situations. Um, first, I like, you know, and I, I like um, just the the increased strength of the repair construct. And so when I think about things that the the strength is is really key, like pec repairs in the military, we see a lot of pec tears in the military, and the tendon is really not that great sometimes. And so we want maximum strength per suture pass uh, that we can get. And so you know, pec repairs is where I use tapes routinely. Um, of course, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, widespread in rotator cuff repair. Um, and I do use tapes in that situation, patellar tendon repair, quad tendon repair. Now I use tapes because of this data that we saw. Um, and I've been using, uh, tapes in the capsulolabral repair situation, bank carts, uh, posterior labrum repair. Um, uh, because I, as we mentioned earlier, I want to maximize, uh, the, the pull through, pull through strength, um, in that capsulolabral tissue. And I guess we, we can stay tuned to see if uh, if that bears out in the in the lab uh, that we're working on right now at Vanderbilt in the in the shoulder repair model. But I'm optimistic that it'll it'll be similar to what we've seen in the other tissue models. Well, Lance, I really do appreciate you taking time. I know you're in between cases, clinic, doing certain things so we can get this done. And I appreciate you taking time on your schedule to shed light on your article, but also some of your process through trials and tribulations as a young and very uh, early career successful investigator. So this is Dr. Lance LeClaire's arthroscopy article. It was published in September, 2021. It was entitled a biomechanical comparison of high tensile strength tape versus high tensile strength suture for tendon fixation under cyclic loading. 
It can currently be accessed at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. And once again, the views expressed in this podcast, they don't necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal, and they're not meant to be used for treatment recommendations for patients. So thanks, Lance, once again, and I hope you all have a great day. Travis, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. And go Navy. Go Navy.